bunch of charismaniacs there for a minute, you know, all this ha, 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 holy laughter stuff. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Good to be saved. Sure beats the alternative. Amen. How about 2 Timothy chapter 1? Second Timothy chapter one. That's <clears throat> yeah. the last big hoorah weekend for northern Michigan, Michiganders. Probably everybody everywhere anymore, huh? Like Labor Day and such. Everybody crashing in or crashing out, you know. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Brother Brian, would you ask the Lord's help in the Sunday school hour? <clears throat> Amen. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 1, we did all the intro, uh, intro, introductory material there uh, last week here, and so we'll get right into it. Verse 1 says, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, <clears throat> according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And so here he talks about the promise of life. And that promise was made, in case you didn't know, it was made by God the Father to God the Son before Genesis 1-1. Now, we're not talking about Calvinism. We're not talking about any of that silly garbage there. But that promise was made by the Father to the Son, and that has to do with everlasting life uh, as a deathless existence in a body. I'll say it again. That promise has to do with everlasting life. It says, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. So that promise uh, was an everlasting uh, promise of everlasting life uh, as a deathless existence in a body, and that body is spiritual, I want you to look at Titus chapter 1 just for a second and try to show this thing to you. Titus chapter 1. <clears throat> Titus chapter 1. Bible says in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, <clears throat> in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie. By the way, that's a great verse. I know you know that. God that cannot lie promised before the world began. You see that? That's why we said that promise was made before Genesis 1-1. All right? It was made before Genesis 1-1. It was made by the Father to the Son. And uh, so what do we know? Well, we know this. Jesus Christ is eternal life. Look at uh, 1 John chapter 5. I'll show it to you. Jesus Christ is eternal life. 1 John chapter 5. Now, you want to talk about a great promise. This is a great promise. And the Father made this promise to the Son before the world began. That's before Genesis 1-1. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, the Bible says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That's why it's important 
uh, to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's not talking about just a general knowledge of Jesus or a general knowledge of God. You know over the book of James that the devils also believe and tremble. But it says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Skip down to verse 20. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You see that thing? Jesus Christ is eternal life. That's what I want you to see. So if you have Christ or you're in Christ, uh, you have eternal life. I'll go a step farther. I believe most of you probably understand this, but do you realize you don't have to wait until you die to get eternal life? So that's like the modern fallacy of Christianity. You need to be saved so when you die you'll have eternal life. Listen, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you believed on the name of the Son of God, you got eternal life. The moment you say, you have it now. That means you're in Christ. If you want your mind blown, consider that Jesus Christ has no beginning or end, right? And neither do you. That's crazy. <laughs> so Jesus Christ is eternal life, and uh, uh, you have eternal life right now. To me, that's the strangest thing in the world uh, because eternity starts with alpha and it ends with omega. There's no beginning or end, right? <clears throat> if I could draw a perfect circle, which I can't, you would see that there's no beginning or end and it goes around and around. That's eternity. Eternity is a perfect circle. Uh, the Bible is a circle. I hope you think you understand that. Uh, in Genesis chapter uh, 1, 2, and 3, it starts out in the garden. Amen? And it ends up in the garden in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, you're back in the garden with a tree bearing 12 manner of fruits. Isn't that wild? That Bible is a circle. Starts in the garden, ends in the garden. All right, it ends up in the book of uh, Revelation. It starts uh, with no sin, and it ends with no sin. That thing's a circle, and that's all it is. It ends up in the book of Revelation where there's no sin, no devil, no tempter, just Jesus Christ, and those people are living with Jesus Christ every single day. Isn't that a blessing? That's, that's eternity. That's the Bible. Now, Jesus Christ is eternal life. Uh, look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I want you to know, not only is Jesus Christ eternal life, you notice in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 that you're familiar with, and if you're not, you should be. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, if Jesus Christ is eternal life, the Bible says about eternal life, it says... It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So Jesus Christ is eternal life, and eternal life is a gift. You see that? That eternal life is a gift. And the greatest thing about a gift is the giver. The greatest thing about the gift is the giver. If you, uh, if you get a gift, it comes from a giver, doesn't it? And God, uh, something to think about, God never use a man or a woman that won't give. But God gave his best, and when God gave his best, you know, John 3, 16, so forth and so on, God gave us his only begotten son. So eternal life is like a gift that is given to us by the giver. And yet we find out in John chapter 10, verse 11, that giver is the good shepherd. 
that giver is a good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So, back in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, the promise that was given, the promise that he could not lie, that promise is the gift of eternal life. And that's the promise he's talking about in verse uh, number two, uh, verse, uh, verse number two there, uh, verse number one. Verse one says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of eternal life, which is in Christ Jesus. So stop and think about it for a second. Outside of Christ, there is no life, is there? The world says this. They say, live it up, don't they? They say, live it up. But you can't. You can't live it up if you're outside of Christ. If you're not saved, you can't live it up. All you can do is die. Uh, you can't live without Christ. You say, how so? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, uh, without Christ, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Now look at verse 2, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. So Paul, he's, he's Timothy's spiritual father, you know that. And he's writing to Timothy, and there's a father and son relationship. And there's something about a father and son relationship um, I mean, I was raised by my stepdad, and that was a different thing for sure. But the relationship I have with my sons, there's something to it. Uh, even if we don't see eye to eye, which is probably every day at least, there's still a strong bond there. And every boy needs a dad to grow. A girl, not so much. She can grow up and be okay if her mom's okay. Uh, but a boy needs a dad around because uh, what boys are good at is putting their mother and tying their mother around their finger. Like, like a string. And Timothy here is called dearly beloved son. And I want you to notice Paul loves Timothy. He loves him and he's writing two letters to him to try to help him out to do right in the ministry. So we say this, Paul's a real pastor. He's a real pastor. You say, why? He cares about people. And uh, he's trying to help some a young preacher. He cares about people. It's not all about him. <clears throat> but... Uh, no doubt when Paul took uh, Timothy on uh, his missionary journeys, I'm sure he let him preach a few times, you know, get up there and preach a, an egg or something, throw a rotten egg out there every once in a while. But here in verse 2 he says to Timothy, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to notice the order there. Grace first, then mercy, and peace. Now listen, we couldn't have God's mercy without God's grace. You see that? Grace has to come first. That's uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. And mercy is something that, uh, that is, is something that you get because of grace. Amen? Uh, but if you get into God's grace and receive God's mercy, then what you get out of that thing is peace. So I want you to notice the order there. When you and I got saved, before we got saved, God Almighty was up there and was looking down when we were lost. And you know what, uh, when we were lost, you know what he was? The Bible says he was angry at us. Well, I'll show you the Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. There's a misconception. A lot of people out there going, well, you know, smile, Jesus loves you, and telling everybody that Jesus loves, uh, you know, everybody in the world. And, but you know, you know who God loves? God loves those who are in his son. Notice this thing in Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. If you go up to a lost man and you tell him how much Jesus loves him and, oh, you need to be saved because Jesus loves you, well, then he'll look at what he's doing. He'll say, okay. I know I'm no good, I'm a gambler, I'm a drinker, I'm a smoker, I'm a carouser, and Jesus loves me, and you say he loves you, well, why do I need to be saved then if he loves me? But look at Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. Here's your 7-Eleven party store. 
God, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. That doesn't look like smile, God loves you, does it? <laughs> and now listen, God showed us uh, His love, didn't He? He showed us His love by sending His Son to die for us. The love of God is shown at Calvary. Uh, he was angry with us when we were lost, and not only that, when we were lost, we couldn't have any peace. Look at Isaiah 57. I'll show you this. Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57, about verse 21. If God's angry with the wicked every day, then we know this according to the Bible, that the, that the lost people, have, they're not, they have no peace. Why do you think a lost man is so restless? Uh, 57, 21. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. <clears throat> but the day I got saved, and the day you got saved, Jesus Christ came in between you and me and the Lord. You see that? And uh, so now when God looks at us, you know who he sees? I know you know this. He sees the sun. When Brother Duty wrote that song. Uh, he says that he was blinded by the sun. That's the S-O-N. That's one of the greatest things in the world to consider, that when you got saved, that Jesus Christ stepped in between you and God. And the reason he loves you now is because you accepted his son. You believed on his son. And then, therefore, Jesus Christ has given you his righteousness, and he's taken your sin. And so God the Father now sees his son. But the wicked, they don't have any peace. And uh, when you got saved, Christ became the payment for the sins. For now we have peace with God. And you know what the wicked have? You know what the lost have? All they have is judgment. Judgment. And uh, when you get saved, you get peace with God, with God, and then you get the peace of God. You ever stop and think that you have the peace of God, that even uh, though you might need, not be what you should be for the Lord, and maybe some of you are not even trying, that you can still put your head on the pillow and go to sleep? <clears throat> and you know that if anything happens in the night, that you'll be with the Lord? And that's what you get by being saved. Look at verse 3, 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers. So here, Paul, he's just showing the reference of his Jewish ancestry here. And uh, look at this again. Look at Philippians chapter 3. He, he just mentions his Jewish ancestry here. And you know this passage, but I want you to see it. In Philippians chapter 3, he talks about uh, his lineage here. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, here's his, here's his lineage, here's his pedigree, uh, here's his uh, papers, if, if he was a dog, you know. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. In Hebrew, the Hebrews is touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness, which is in the law of blameless. You see that? You say, what about, uh, uh, he's, pretty, uh, he's pretty concerned about his lineage. He's a Jew. Jews are concerned about their heritage, their lineage. You say, how about you? Where were you born? I was born in a hospital. <laughs> okay, what about your lineage? What about it? Well, I got a grandpa and a grandma. What about great-grandma? I don't know too much about them. And then you get to, uh, you know, you get to great-greats. Nobody knows who they are. You know what I mean? But that Jew, that Jew knew his uh, lineage. He knew his ancestry. He knew what tribe he was from. What tribe are you from? Are you, I don't know. I'm from the, you know, Genghis Khan tribe, I guess, or, you know. Job of the Hut tribe or something like that, or, or whatever it is, German tribe. But he says, whom I serve from my forefathers. Notice the next phrase here, with pure conscience. You see that? With pure conscience. Now, I'll give you a question. Can you say that you serve the Lord with a pure conscience? 
That's a strange passage, isn't it? He says, I served the Lord for my forefathers with a pure conscience. You ever, take your Bible and go to Acts chapter 9. You ever stop and think about Paul and uh, over there in Acts chapter 9? Uh, Acts chapter 9. Doesn't he talk about being the one who holds the clothes of Stephen when Stephen's getting stoned to death? Isn't that the passage I want? I'm guessing here because I don't have the verse. In uh, Acts chapter 9. I think, is it the first part of it? That's his conversion. Yeah, seven. That's what I want. Thank you. Seven, the end of seven. Yeah, 758. Thank you. This and cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Uh, but, you know, you get over there, you think, the, you think, you know, you think Paul had a pure conscience about that? Imagine being the one who held the clothes for a preacher that got killed in your town, and then you get saved, you know, a little bit later. I mean, that'd bother you. That'd bother me. And Paul gets saved in chapter 9, and there's something bugging Paul. You say, how do you know? Because when he shows up and gives his testimony, he's like, I persecuted the church. Now, I'm probably not looking at people who persecuted the church, but there's individuals in the body of Christ that before they saved, they were adversarial against people who were witnessing, and out passing out tracts and preaching on the street and trying to do visitation, trying to lead them to Christ. And they'd cuss them out and they'd give them a hard time. And Paul was bugged about that thing. And all that stuff is uh, going to be there uh, if that, that's you before you got saved. But this, like I said, is before Paul got saved. But usually the things that bother a Christian are the things that they do before you get saved. And uh, so that's a trick of the devil. He'll, what he'll do is he'll take a Christian, he'll pull him on the backside of Calvary, and he'll throw stuff in the Christian's face that he did before he got saved. And then what the devil will do now that you are saved is he'll take the things that are your besetting sins, and what he'll do is when you ask the Lord to forgive you for them, the, the, the devil will kneel down and say, well, you didn't really mean that. You see what I mean? That's the trick the devil plays on Christians. The trick devil plays on law, uh, Christians that got saved late in life is uh, bringing up stuff from their past. And then the devil brings up stuff from the Christian's past that uh, he continually has a trouble with. But after a while, Paul got his conscience straightened out. And you've got to remember that getting your conscience straightened out takes time. It takes time. You're not going to go to church for 30 years and you're not going to operate the same way every day and, uh, and not have some issues with it. Uh, it takes a lot of time to get our brains washed out. Amen? You've got to remember that. No matter where you're at in life, whether you're 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50, or 60, or, you know, you get the high score of the day, you know, uh, you have got to continually change. I remember going to ch uh, church in Lupton for about 30 days, and I was all fired up and excited, and man, the Lord had done a work in my heart, so forth and so on, and and someone I know real well uh, looked at me and says, man, you have been brainwashed. Without even thinking about it, uh, I said, yeah, man, I got one of the cleanest brains in Lupton. <laughs> they looked at me and they just shook their head in disgust. <laughs> Jesus said, you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And that's why going to, that's why taking Bible classes is good. That's why learning the Bible is good, even if you've gone through it already. Amen. That's why reading the Bible is good. He said, you're clean through the word. 
Listen, that's why after you've been saved for a while, it's good to take some classes over. That's why I think TBDI is good for every church member. That's the Bible Doctrine Institute, uh, Brother Peacock's school there. I think everyone should be a part of that thing. And uh, it's good for your conscience. It's good for your conscience. And listen, your conscience needs to be continually fortified through the Word of God. And having a good conscience, uh, Paul's big on conscience, amen? And you should be too. Look at Acts 23. A lot of Christians have a rotten conscience. A rotten conscience. Acts chapter 23, look at verse 1. This is what Paul says. Paul says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Obviously, he's talking about from the Damascus road till then. To the Damascus road till then. Uh, one more chapter over. Look at 2416. 24.16, he says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. He says, that's a dual thing. So that's what you've got to ask yourself as a Christian. Do I, have, do I have a good conscience? Do I have a pure conscience? And if I do have a pure conscience, is it void of offense towards God? Yes, okay, check. But is it a void of offense towards man? Well, not so much. All right, there you've got to work on it. You see it? It's not just you got a clean conscience towards God, but you have a good conscience towards man. If you're always going down the highway, going about 70 or 75, and you never obey the traffic laws and that, you got a good conscience when you see Johnny Law? <laughs> no. You ever wonder why it is uh, just it's so customary when you see the police to hit the brake, and you find out half the time you're not speeding? You know what that is? Well, that's, you know, muscle memory. No, it's a bad conscience. <laughs> it's a bad conscience. I'm not preaching against speeding, but hey, if you got the time, do the crime, right? But uh, that's, that's because of a bad conscience. You remember uh, when you were younger, you were always hanging around that one kid, and uh, someone would uh, rebuke or reprove or holler at you, and there's one that I didn't do it, right? I just, I didn't do it, it wasn't me. You know what that is? That's a bad conscience. That's a guilty conscience, right? And some, you know, someone's like, oh, it's, I didn't, it's all right, it's a guilty conscience, you'll be all right. <laughs> but Paul says, I hear and do exercise myself to have always a conscious void of offense toward God and toward men. So when he talks in 2 Timothy about having a pure conscience, what he's doing is he's talking about striving to keep his conscience clear. Striving to keep his conscience clear and the, doing the things that are right. And what will help you as a Christian, not only to, to keep your nose in the book, amen, every single day that you can, but you just do the things that are right. You do the things that are right in the sight of all men, and you don't defile your conscience, and you don't let somebody else defile it either. And that's what he's talking about. And uh, you can find the references to those really easy. Just look up the word conscience and run some of those through. Let's look at a couple. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, I'll give you just one or two more here. Paul's big on conscience. And in the last days here, a lot of Christians' consciences are shot. Uh, not only because they don't uh, allow the good things in, but they've let, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not only because they let all the bad things in, but they don't replace the bad with the good. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. I don't know, has anybody here ever gone through a polygraph test? But there's a, a specific method they use to try to pin you down 
And even if you're not guilty, they try to get you to doubt your answers. But if you got a clear conscience, you don't have a problem with it, do you? Did you eat the cookie? Nope. <laughs> Did you get up in the middle of the night and steal the cookie? No. Yes. No. Right. It's either, I mean, if you got a good conscience, you're like, no, I don't like cookies. Right? But what they want to do, it doesn't matter. They want to get you off your game and thinking, well, I thought about getting up. Well, since you thought about it, is it possible then that you did? You know, that, that's, that's why. They're, they're trying to capitalize off your bad conscience. And uh, Romans chapter 9, he says, I say the truth in Christ. I line up my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. I'll give you another one. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. You want a good study for the week? Study your conscience. Study what Paul says about the conscience. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. Old preacher that I come up under there in Lupton, he said this, garbage in, garbage out. If you always put garbage inside of your head, you're going to have a, you're going to not only be like a trash can, you're going to smell like a trash can, but it's going to affect your conscience. If you're always letting dirty stuff in, you're going to think dirty. If it's always bad, you're going to act bad. All right. First Timothy 1:19, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, he's talking about Christians here. That's why it's important. He says, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. So they put the conscience away. You can't, put, you know, what's that, that goofy uh, cartoon? Are you my conscience? You know, you know, Christians just give their conscience to anything. If you give your conscience to the, uh, you know, contemporary Christian thought and movement and music of the day, you're not going to have a good conscience. But Paul says you're to be holding a good conscience, which some have put away. You see it? You realize that your conscience is something you have to hang on to. That means you have control of it. And some folks have put away their conscience. You know this. America has no conscience. It doesn't. You're now entering the, I don't know, second, third, fourth generation of amoral Americans. You think uh, just because people live in America that they're Christians. We haven't been a Christian nation if we ever were one, which I don't think we ever were one. You had a bunch of deists around 17 and early 1800. You had a couple of revivals that went through the south. Some even made it as far north as Chicago and as far west as California. But you have generation after generation of people that have no conscience. You'll have men that will sit in front of the television and watch the most ungodly things, and then they'll want to have a conversation with your daughter. No conscience. And you have to keep your conscience clear. You say, why? Because if you don't, you'll mess up. You'll mess up. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the military term is you'll get jammed up. And aren't you a soldier? You're a soldier. Whether you want to be a soldier or not, you're in the army of the king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? And if you don't keep a clear conscience, you'll get jammed up. You'll get jammed up with the brethren. Why? Bad conscience. You'll get jammed up with the Lord. Things won't be right. The relationship won't be You'll get jammed up with your family. All because of the conscience. So the devil or the flesh, it brings us back to a place before we're saved or we're out of fellowship with the Lord and shows us many times how you used to have a good time. He does that to people who are saved late in life and he does it to Christians who often get out of the will of God. But uh, it never reminds us that we didn't have the peace of God before you got saved. You see, your flesh and the devil is nothing but a bunch of liars. They remind you of a good time, but they never remind you of not having peace. All right, now look at verse 3 here. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers, that's his Jewish heritage there, 
with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. So Paul, he's a prayer, praying man, and he prays for Timothy. And like I tried to, I tried to explain, I think it was on Wednesday, some people get hung up with the position of prayer, and if that is what prayer is to you, then fine, then assume the position of prayer, whatever that is. But let me tell you what, uh, I don't know too many people who can sit there and pray for hours and hours on end. You're going to have to learn to pray on the fly, aren't you? And that's why Paul could say pray without ceasing. Do you think Paul sat there for four hours at a crack on his knees? I don't know. Maybe he did. But as I see throughout the Pauline epistles, uh, there's never any grass that grew under his feet. He was always gone. He was always moving. He was always doing. He was always serving. He was always preaching. He was always trying to uh, help people and build uh, young preachers. But uh, Paul is a prayer man. And uh, he's remembering Timothy in his prayers for Timothy's ministry. And that has got Paul stirred up. And uh, so he's remembering Timothy for, in his prayers for Timothy's ministry. And then if you skip down to verse 5, you'll see the word remembrance shows up again. And in verse 5, it's dealing with Timothy's faith. So Paul's concerned about two things. He's concerned about Timothy's ministry, and he's concerned about Timothy's faith. And so there's two things in chapter 1 that Paul brings to his remembrance when he thinks of Timothy. Every time Paul, uh, Paul the Apostle thinks about his preacher boy Timothy, number one, he thinks about his ministry that the Lord has him doing over there in Ephesus. And then the second thing that comes to his mind, verse 5, is his faith. And those things go hand in hand. Listen, you can't have a ministry today without faith. Uh, you can fake it, but you're going to have to have faith to, to minister Look at verse 4. He says, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. Now, you've got to remember here, Paul's trained Timothy. And Paul treats Timothy uh, like a son. He prays for him. Amen. He encourages him. And he's had to correct Timothy at times, no doubt. But notice when Timothy responds to Paul, he responds as a son to a father. You see that? And Paul says, being mindful of thy tears. You see that in verse 4? That's the right response. That's the right response. Look at verse 5. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that in thee also. So Paul says, look, Timothy, when I get to thinking about you and I remember about you, I think about the unfeigned faith that is in you just like it was in your grandma." And just like it was in your mamma, you see that? And that's what, he, that's what he's saying there. Now, this is the kind of faith we're talking about. This is the, faith, the, the kind of faith that Enoch had. See what I mean? It's the same kind of faith that Noah had. It was the uh, same kind of faith that Abraham had when the Lord said, get your bags and get out, pack it and go. Where are we going? I'll show you when we get there. <laughs> Amen? And uh, that's the faith that Isaac and Jacob had. And, of course, I'm just kind of reminiscent of Hebrews chapter 11. That's unfeigned faith. Unfeigned faith, it's, uh, it's different than saving faith. I don't stop and think about that unfeigned faith. It's the faith that responds to truth when you hear it. A lot of people struggle with responding to truth. They struggle with it because of the messenger. Uh, they struggle with it because the messenger often makes a mess. Okay, but unfaith faith, unfeigned faith responds to truth regardless of the message it's given. Amen, we said this before, what is it over in uh, Numbers chapter 32? Unfeigned faith, it uh, accepts the truth regardless of what donkey delivers it, <laughs> right? 
And Balaam had a donkey, and oh, Balaam's donkey preached him a message. And he said, what you hit me for? <laughs> and, uh, but saving faith is faith that saves you, amen? But unfeigned faith is responding to the truth when you hear the truth. And unfortunately, you, you know it and I know it. Some Christians don't respond to the truth when they hear it. So Timothy's parents, uh, at least on his mother's side, was godly. You take that away from the text there. Uh, you have uh, grandmother Lois and mother Eunice. Now we have really no indication on his dad's side. He was a Greek. Um, but we don't know. But his mother and grandmother are godly. And uh, his grandmother and mother obviously responded to truth when they heard it. And the strange thing, like I said, is nothing is really said about his father. Is it not? He was a Gentile. He may have rejected the gospel. It doesn't say. But uh, unfeigned faith is just real faith. It means sincere faith. And you notice here in verse, past, uh, verse 5, it says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that, it, that in thee also. And uh, I want you to notice that a faithful family does everything it can to impart faith to their children. Now listen, you can't make your children uh, grasp a hold of faith, but you can do the best you can, right? And children have a mind of their own. They have their own will. And I know I'm preaching to some family here, but hey, listen, uh, it's, you, have a, you have a personal will. You have your own will. And a family, a faithful family will impart faith to its children. You, you see the succession here. It goes from grandma to mamma to Timothy. That's three generations from one person that we know of. Three generations. <clears throat> now, the problem that some Christians have is they, uh, they're, they're somewhere in the middle. The problem sometimes is, is there's a second generation that doesn't mean as much to them as it did to the first. Or you'll get the problem is, is you end up becoming the, Eunice, uh, the lowest generation, the first generation. You get saved. You, you come from a lost family. You come from a home that wasn't, you know, uh, didn't have unfeigned faith. And all of a sudden you get a hold of it and now you start the thing off. And what happens is you raise your kids. What happens many times is people that are, don't have that unfaith faith that are part of your family, they'll start criticizing you for what you're doing. They'll start criticizing you for taking your kids to church. They'll start criticizing, why are you on the street with your kids? Why are you, do, why, why are you, always, why do you get to dress that way? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, because I'm a jerk, I'm like, well, why do you got to dress the way you dress? You know? Amen. Why do you get to criticize how I dress? How do you get to criticize how my family dresses? You know, you look like a dump truck threw up over a giraffe. What does that matter? You know what I mean? I don't say that, but you know, but that's where you're at. If you're a first generationer, that's what you got to deal with. You got to deal with the lost people asking, messing around with you and their family. And they're like, why you got to be so weird about it? They're like, I'm going to church. What's weird about that? You watch football like every day, and I don't criticize you for that, right? But you got to criticize me and my children because I go to church. <clears throat> But uh, that's a tough thing. Unfeigned faith. Uh, is it, you, you, are you going to be able to get along with God and be able to pass that thing on? And a lot of times when you're the first generation, when you're, when you're the lowest generation, that'd be a good message to preach. Someone figure that thing out and preach that message about the lowest generation. <coughs> Amen. I'm a second generation, but the Lord got a hold of me when I'm about 20 years old. 20 years old and shook the daylights out of me and said, look, man, you... you, you <laughs> Okay, you're saved, but you got a long way to go. And by the time I was 20 years old, the Lord settled that issue with the King James Bible on me. 
he said, now you sit there and uh, you take your raising and use it to your advantage. You learn that book. And then come about uh, 39, going on 40, the Lord called me into the ministry to be a pastor. And I got into the ministry. You know what the Lord did? He shook me up again. He says, you've got a long way to go, boy. He says, I'm going to teach you how to love people. I'm going to teach you how to take care of people. I'm going to have to teach you how to preach, and I'm going to have to pull you out of the church you come up to to, to figure that thing out. But that's uh, the problem you get with, uh, gener- you know, when untamed faith isn't always unfeigned. And there's always, you've got to remember, there's always satanic opposition that is trying to take away the faith that you're trying to instill in those that you love. Now, folk that have grown up and don't have 10 generations saved, they don't, they don't look at things uh, that way. But like I said, some of the first generation uh, to get saved, uh, they look at things differently. But here, Timothy has had the faith passed on to him by mom. Think about the advantage that Timothy has. Can I get you to do that just for a second? He's got an advantage. We're not saying that Lois's generation, Grandma had everything right. We know she didn't, right? Uh, we're not saying that Eunice had everything, but they both had unfeigned faith, and they passed it on to Timothy. They got something going for them. They were able to pass it on. And, but here Timothy's got the faith passed on to him by mom and grandma. And the greatest thing you can ever do is teach your family that God is the answer to all things. You get low on money, you get low on food, you know, get, get with your family and get to praying and ask God for deliverance. And when he does, then you pass that thing on. But uh, no matter what it is, show them. And that's what it takes to pass on the unfeigned faith. Look at verse 5 one more time. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. You know, the thing I've seen over the last uh, probably 30 years, I even saw it back as early in the, the early 80s before the Lord got a hold of me about the King James Bible. I saw families coming up that appeared to have what you would consider unfeigned faith, and you see their kids going right to the world, right to the world. And say, well, the parents, the parents. Okay, wait a minute. Remember, children have their own self-will, right? Children make their own decision after so many years. You know what I see? Mom and dad had the faith. They just weren't able to pass it on. You see what I mean? And that's the thing you got to get a hold of God with. You get a family up and going, are you going to be able to pass on the faith? You might not be able to pass it on to all of them, but can you get it passed on to the majority of them? Well, Timothy is a real blessing because he has benefited from this generational faith, and that stuff is passed on. What Lois did, she passed it on to Eunice, and what Eunice did, she passed it on to Timothy, and so should you and I. We should be the ones that pass it on. If uh, the Lord doesn't come back soon, I don't want this to be the end of Bible Believers Baptist Church. We're approaching nine, ten years here. I just This should just be the start. You say, are you discouraged because the pews aren't full? No. But this is just a starting point. We've got to pass it on. Verse 6, he says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now Paul here once again reminds Timothy about the ministry. And besides the fact that when Timothy was ordained, something transferred between Paul's hands and him supernaturally. I know there's something there. But what he's telling Timothy is that he's got to be fearless about this stuff. And Timothy, as a young preacher, just has to learn to put his head down and just plow for God. Just plow for God. He tells him this in verse 6. He tells him, you know what? He basically, he tells him in verse 8, it's not going to be easy. And then verse 12, he tells him again, it's not going to be easy. 
And what a preacher has to do if he's going to be in the ministry is just duck your head and live for God. All the things uh, everyone throws at you, just duck and go, duck and go. And uh, that's exactly what he's telling. Now, the next verse is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Verse 7, uh, Christian uh, book distributors love to plaster it all over plaques and books and posters. And I don't reckon they have a clue what it is, but maybe some of them do. I don't think they're all stupid, just some of them, amen. Look at verse 7. The Bible says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, first of all, you need to understand this verse is not uh, insinuating that you live life without fear as in the no fear mentality. That's not what he's saying. But he's talking about Timothy. He's talking about being in the ministry. All right? And God did not give us a spirit of fear. Notice what he gives us, though. He gives us a spirit of power, the spirit of love, and he gives you a sound mind when you got saved. (laughs) Somebody say amen on that one. He has given you a sound mind. (laughs) But you notice that the spirit he's talking about here in verse 7 is not the Holy Spirit. He's talking about it has to do with your state of mind, your state of mind. I don't know if you ever said, well, we're almost done here. Have you ever stopped and think about what sin is? Sin is insanity. Uh, sin is acting crazy. We're not talking about, you know, when you're goofing around with the family. But uh, sin is acting crazy. Uh, you know what trust is? Trust is sanity. When you trust the Lord, then you're sane. And acting crazy is insanity. Look over Exodus chapter 16. We'll finish up with this. Exodus chapter 16. He says he's giving you a sound mind. And when you and I sin, we're going against God, and it's insanity. Would you agree this morning? Insanity. But when we trust God, that's when we're sane, and that's when we're safe. But in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 3 here, the Lord's delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea and all that stuff. Look at verse 3. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You know what that is? That's insanity. That's sin. Uh, God brought them out, delivered them, fed them with manna. You know what they're saying? I wish I was still back in Egypt. I wish I was still back in bondage. That's nuts. And if a man that is saved wants to go back into the world, that's insanity. But you see it a lot, don't you? You see people just turning back and going for the world. Why? Insanity. Sin brings insanity. But God, when you got saved, he gave you a sound mind. There might be some drawings. I understand that. If you think about it, but when people do that, they're not in the right state of mind. Now, look, there's some drawings, like I said, there's a, a people might have a taste for the garlics and the leeks, right, from Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons, and maybe even some people struggle with the drink of Egypt. But if you go back into Egypt, you ain't thinking right. That's nuts. That's insane. That's crazy. Uh, and he says here in verse uh, 7, 2 Timothy 1, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. So when you fear, it's not of God. God has not given you the spirit of fear. Rather, he's given you the other spirit there. And we'll stop there because there's a lot to cover on this verse here, and I want to make sure we take the time and go through it the right way. And we'll pick up that spirit of power. Let me get back here.